It's amazing how much of our lives we spend unconscious. We spend on average one third of our lives sleeping, a third of our life completely unconscious. Even while we're awake, most of what we are doing, we are doing unconsciously. Most of our bodily processes happen without our will or awareness. And that is all for the good, it is by design. You don't, thank God, have to think to make your heart beat. But it's not just these basic bodily functions. It's amazing how often we find we've been doing things you might take as intentional or conscious acts, things that you do every day, get dressed, make coffee, essentially on autopilot. We pay conscious attention to what we are doing most when it is something that we are first learning. After that, if things are going well, we can do it pretty much without thinking. Our thoughts are most directed at something when there's a problem in its functioning. When I was a kid, I spent countless hours throwing a football with my dad. When he first showed me the proper way to do it, how to stand, how to grip the laces, I had to be especially aware of what I was doing. After countless repetitions, it just sort of happened. I'm not saying I went into some kind of unconscious state. I had awareness, but I didn't have that kind of self-awareness that comes with trying to figure out why you're doing something wrong. If I started throwing a bunch of bad passes in a row, that was a different story. But the same thing with anything you teach your body to do. If you know what you're doing, you hardly know what you're doing. Conscious thought may be one of the rarest things in the universe. You can see how important it is for self-correction, but perhaps in an ideal world, it should not happen at all. Friedrich Nietzsche thought that too many intellectuals in a society was an indication that the society was sick. It was as if the conscious mind of a society were being awakened to figure out what had gone wrong. We take our perpetual thought-tormented state as normal, but it took us years to become conscious in the way that we are years to become conscious at all, in fact. Some of the most important developments in our brain happened before we had any sense of ourselves or what we were doing. What's your earliest memory? When did you first know that you were an individual, a self? Perhaps there was no single moment, but instead a slow dawn portending a day full of shadow. And now, who are you when you go to sleep? Who are you when you dream? We come out of the night and seem to require frequent doses of darkness to be able to bear the bright day. Who were you in the uncountable years before you were born? And who will you be in the unknown number of years after you die? 
In the light of consciousness, we experience only a perpetual present. We remember past events and anticipate future ones, but this is always a present experience. Two things will always elude both our experience and our understanding, the beginning and the end. These two form an absolute limit to our knowing, and so it's only fitting that they be joined together in one symbol, an infinite circle within which the conscious mind is enclosed. The symbol is called Ouroboros. It is the symbol of time, infinity, identity, and the unity of opposites, or the coincidentia oppositorum. Contemplation of any one of these aspects of the symbol leads us very quickly into paradox and some of the most difficult philosophical problems one could possibly deal with. We might justly say that Ouroboros is the symbol of paradox, the limit of our understanding, as well as its infinity, the alpha and omega of the mind. A circular snake swallowing its tail, the Ouroboros is one of the simplest and most recognizable symbolic images, yet one of the most complex and difficult to fully explicate. The name is Greek for tail-eating. Its first appearance is in the Enigmatic Book of the Netherworld, a cryptographic Egyptian funerary text from the 14th century BC that was discovered in the tomb of Tutankhamun. It depicts two serpents encircling the god Ra Osiris, that is, Osiris the god of the underworld reborn as Ra the sun god, one snake is around his head and upper chest, and the other around his feet. The snakes have been interpreted as manifestations of the deity Mehen, which means coiled one, who in other funerary texts protects Ra in his underworld journey. Incidentally, Mehen was also a board game played in ancient Egypt. It consisted of a coiled snake and stone pieces. We don't have rules for this but it looks like a game that might have been played with dice where you advance the pieces from one end to the other. We're going to encounter another snake-related board game momentarily. Ouroboros also appears as the snake that surrounds the world, the world serpent. It recurs in the ancient myths of Babylon, in India, in Africa and Mexico in the sand paintings of the Navajos, in the occult documents of the Gnostics, on the amulets of gypsies, in science fiction, and in your head right now. In Norse myth, Jormungandr is a sea serpent that inhabits the ocean that surrounds the world, grasping his tail in his mouth. When he releases it, it is the beginning of Ragnarok, the final battle at the end of the world, the Götterdämmerung in which even the gods shall die. It was common in the ancient world to visualize the earth as one large landmass in the middle with a circular sea surrounding it. This is in part due to 
limited geographical knowledge and communication with other cultures, but it can also be considered a self-portrait of the human psyche, in which the landmass has consciousness and the external waters the unconscious abyss or chaos. In Greek myth, too, there was a great river surrounding the world, but the river itself was also a god, named Okeanos, from whom we get the term ocean. He was a titan, a son of Uranus and Gaia, or sky and earth. With his wife Tethys, he fathered the river gods and the nymphs known as the Okeanids. Unlike Jormungandr, Okeanos' representations took a human form, though he was sometimes depicted as having the lower body of a serpent. Ouroboros has certain features in common with the biblical Leviathan, a serpent-like sea monster that gets mentioned in several books in the Hebrew Bible, most prominently in the book of Job. Leviathan belongs to the ancient Near East pattern of the Chaos Kampf, a type of creation myth in which a god or culture hero battles and subdues or slays a monster, usually a serpent that represents primordial chaos to set the world in order. The biblical Leviathan probably derives from the older Canaanite Lotan, a primeval monster defeated by the storm god Baal Hadad. Other notable examples of this myth include the Mesopotamian Tiamat, defeated by Marduk, the aforementioned Jormungandr, defeated by Thor, and from India, the Vedic serpent Virtra, slain by Indra. Although it's not entirely clear what form the sea monster Leviathan takes, we can see that typologically it's related to the myth of dragon slaying, which lasted well into the Middle Ages in the West, in such tales as that of St. George. And we even see variations in modern literature like Herman Melville's Moby Dick, a novel in which Leviathan takes the form of a whale, pursued by the mad Captain Ahab. Spoiler alert, it does not go as it does in the ancient myths. The name Leviathan derives from a Hebrew root word meaning to twine or to join, with an adjectival suffix that literally means wreathed or twisted in folds. According to the medieval Kabbalistic text, the Zohar, Leviathan is a single creature with no mate, its tail placed in its mouth. The Rabbi Rashi describes it as twisting around and encompassing the entire world, which adds to the connection with the Ouroboros, which is folded in on and joins itself, but it also strangely recalls another prominent serpent symbol from the Bible and elsewhere, the Caduceus, the twin snakes which twist around each other as they ascend a magical staff. Ouroboros and Caduceus appear to me to be related symbols. More to explore in a later episode. Later rabbinic commentators have it that God created a male and a female leviathan and had to slay the female so it wouldn't reproduce. You may wonder why he couldn't just as well have killed the male. Was he worried about leviathan hybrids? This is at least in keeping with the ancient pattern in which the chaos monster is female, at least symbolically. There's an inherent tension in the Bible, though, 
between the older Mesopotamian religions in which it is merely a god or even a man who slays the chaos monster and the Hebraic idea that there is one god which created everything, including Leviathan. It seems like something less of an achievement to slay something you yourself created, or at least it must have a different meaning. But consider what Jung said about Ouroboros, quote, It is said of the Ouroboros that he slays himself and brings himself to life, fertilizes himself, and gives birth to himself, end quote. Yahweh had to slay the sea serpent, and as we shall see, everyone must overcome the psychic domination of the Ouroboros if they are to become a fully individuated person. Although an Ouroboros-like creature appears in many creation myths, no group is more often associated with the Ouroboros image than the Gnostics. I'm not really sure how much familiarity with Gnosticism I ought to assume among my audience here, but Suffice it to say that Gnosticism, or what we have come to call Gnosticism, emerged in the first century among Christian and Jewish sects. It's always been a strongly heterodox phenomenon in terms of beliefs, but it tends to be characterized by a strong dualism and negative view of the material world, valorizing instead the spiritual realm, and a preference for personal experience, which is called gnosis or knowledge, over traditional teachings. For the Gnostic, we are saved by knowledge and not faith. Sometimes this knowledge takes the form of secret teachings that diverge from or invert orthodox interpretations of the Bible. Most Gnostics view the God of the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh, as not the highest deity, with some actually identifying Yahweh with Satan. In the standard view of the fall, Man was responsible for the fall when he succumbed to the temptation of the serpent and ate the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had been instructed in the garden that if they ate the fruit of that tree, they would die. But the serpent told Eve that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve and then Adam tasted this fruit, and this was the sin of disobedience that cast them out of paradise. Now, for many Gnostics, this is not the story of the fall. Instead, creation itself was the fall, and the serpent is often cast in the role as a heroic truth-teller or light-bringer, much like the Greek Prometheus. Gnosticism often had a highly complex cosmology, but there was no standard version. In fact, there was no standard version of Christianity at all until the 4th century, when the Council of Nicaea began to establish a theological consensus. This nascent Catholic Church declared Gnosticism, along with other heterodox tendencies, a heresy, and Gnostics went underground literally in the case of important texts, such as the scrolls which were discovered in Nag Hammadi in 1945. Prior to that, we knew about Gnostic beliefs primarily through attacks on them by the church fathers, such as Irenaeus. It's worth noting, though, that it wasn't just the Catholics that opposed Gnosticism. The 3rd century Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus 
an Egyptian pagan whose teachings are in many ways similar to Gnosticism, also criticizes the Gnostics in the collection of his teachings called the Enneads. Anyway, one of the accusations against some of the Gnostics by the church fathers was that they worshipped the serpent that appears in Genesis. There was a sect called Ophites, or Ophians, after the Greek word for snake, Ophis. The Ophites apparently venerated the serpent as the great liberator, to which even Jesus was either subordinated or assimilated. And they were supposed to have seen Leviathan as an Ouroboros, which surrounds and separates the material world from the divine realm. That is, they called the outer limit of their cosmos Leviathan. In this mythos also, upon death, the soul had to ascend through seven spheres ruled by beings called archons, analogous or identical to the seven planetary realms of classical astronomy. The soul which fails to completely ascend will be swallowed by a dragon who returns it to an animal body in the material world. Snakes and ladders, anyone? Note how this dragon seems to serve the opposite function of Mehen, escorting the soul through the underworld. Well, this ancient snake cult is certainly fascinating, but our information here comes through various church fathers, all of whom seem to rely on a single text, the Syntagma of Hippolytus of Rome, which is now lost. We have no Ophite texts. Origen describes a diagram representing the Ophite view of the cosmos, which includes the seven archons and Leviathan as the outer limit, but we don't have the diagram itself, only reconstructions from Origen's description. One text which is not lost from the ancient world and which definitively presents the Ouroboros symbol is a Chrysopoeia of Cleopatra, an alchemical text from 3rd century Alexandria in Egypt. There it appears as a half-black, half-white snake, encircling a motto in Greek, hentopan, which means all is one, or all in one, or simply all one. Cleopatra was an important early alchemist who was thought to have been able to make the philosopher's stone and to have invented the alembic, a distilling apparatus used in alchemical processes. Chrysopoeia means gold-making, but recall the alchemical motto, Our gold is not the common gold. The text is a single page of nothing but symbols and captions, such as that famous Ouroboros image. The black half of the snake represents earth and darkness, while the light half represents heaven and light. We can see the Ouroboros as either the boundary between the material and spiritual world, or as their unity, one and many, all one. In Hinduism, Ouroboros symbolism has been used to describe the Kundalini, the divine energy which begins at the base of the spine and can be awakened and nourished through the practice of yoga and meditation. Kundalini means coiled snake. According to the Yoga Kundalini Upanishad, the divine power Kundalini shines like the stem of a young lotus. Like a snake coiled round upon herself, she holds her tail in her mouth and lies resting half asleep at the base of the body. 
Interesting that it's a female snake associating the Kundalini with usually female chaos monsters and sea serpents slain by the culture heroes. But in the latter myths, chaos needs to be killed to bring order to the world and thus civilization. With Kundalini, on the other hand, it is as if we are dealing with a spiritual power source, a divine feminine energy that needs to be tapped into. But these two may not be so far apart. After all, in the Chaos Kampf myths, for instance, when Marduk slays Tiamat, it is the body of the beast itself which is used to form the world. And therefore, perhaps, her energy remains suffused throughout the world. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the 19th century spiritualist and founder of the occult doctrine known as Theosophy, seemed to have been drawing on the idea of kundalini energy as well as Gnostic and alchemical doctrines when she wrote the following. Quote, Before our globe had become egg-shaped or round, it was a long trail of cosmic dust or fire mist, moving and writhing like a serpent. This, say the explanations, was the spirit of God moving on the chaos until its breath had incubated cosmic matter and made it assume the annular shape of a serpent with its tail in its mouth, emblem of eternity in its spiritual and of our world in its physical sense. End quote. A Chinese equivalent of Ouroboros is called Wu Ji, which is visualized simply as an empty circle. Wu is a negating word, and Ji means ridgepole, which signifies a limit or boundary. Usual translation of Wu Ji is infinite, boundless, or limitless, but it's possible to interpret the word as meaning something like the limit of nothing, which I suppose means the same thing as being. Equivalent terms are apiron in ancient Greek, which was the central idea in the cosmology of Anaximander, and Einsof in Hebrew, which is a term used in Kabbalah for the unmanifest, infinite, and primordial God. Of course, we could also take the Yang-Yin symbol as equally related, for it symbolizes totality and the unity and interpenetration of opposite forces. It also has a black-and-white schema, similar to the Hentopan Ouroboros from the Chrysopoeia of Cleopatra. Some variant of the Ouroboros idea comes up quite frequently in science, where it has similar meanings as it does in myth. Time, eternity, infinity, identity, recursion, and so on. We can think of the Mobius strip, a circular band with a bend in it, which consists of a single plane or surface that can be infinitely traversed through both the inside and outside. Then we have the infinity symbol, which looks like a sideways figure eight, itself reminiscent of the double serpents that form the caduceus. Sometimes we do see the Ouroboros depicted in the form of the infinity symbol. This was first introduced into mathematics by John Wallace in 1655, but he did not explain why he used it or where he got it from. It might derive from the Roman numeral for a thousand or from the Greek omega letter. But it also curiously appears in the cross of St. Boniface, 
The Ouroboros also suggests an important idea in cybernetics, philosophy of mind, and artificial intelligence, which is recursion or feedback, where an output channel becomes an input, creating a loop. Feedback often occurs in technology in a negative way, such as when you get the out-of-control squeal produced by a microphone and speaker, each boosting a signal in an expanding process of mutual amplification. But the basic idea of feedback was discovered by cyberneticians in the mid-20th century to be a key to the governance of any system, whether that of a computer or a human mind. The name cybernetics comes from the Greek kyber or steersman, specifically the steersman of a ship. So this has to do with how information produced by a system can be fed back into the system and used by it. In the case of a mind, we call this self-consciousness. The idea in cybernetics is that a feedback loop forms a circular logic of self-corrective causal action, which helps a system or organism respond to new situations. The science writer Douglas Hofstetter introduced the theory that such a feedback loop is actually the origin and limit of human consciousness in his 2007 book, I Am a Strange Loop. I don't actually recommend the book. I think it's rather poorly written, but the basic idea is worth looking at here. The strange loop is not merely an ordinary feedback loop because the strange loop is not merely an ordinary feedback loop because the strange loop is not merely an ordinary feedback loop. You understand the concept of the strange loop even if you've never heard the term. Most of us were introduced to it through the game of rock, paper, scissors. Rock crushes scissors, scissors cut paper, paper covers rock. I always wondered how the paper covering the rock was supposed to defeat the rock. So what if the rock gets covered? Anyway, I think you get the idea. Each one of these objects destroys one of the other objects and is destroyed by one of them. But the one it is destroyed by is itself destroyed by the same object that the first destroys. You follow me? Now you also probably encountered a kind of faux strange loop from that method of packing boxes where you fold each side over the side adjacent to it so that at the end each side is underneath the one on one side and on top of the one next to it. That's not exactly a strange loop because you can easily understand how the effect is achieved by just folding the box. Strictly speaking, a strange loop is a paradox. And it usually takes the form of a visual illusion and ought not to be possible in actual space. You can see the most striking illustrations of them in M.C. Escher drawings, especially drawing hands, in which two hands are each drawing the other, and waterfall in which the bottom of the waterfall feeds into a stream that, somehow without appearing to climb upward, becomes the top of the waterfall. The strangeness of the strange loop comes not from the fact that one proceeds in one direction and ends up where one began, all loops do this, but from the fact that the strange loop is hierarchically ordered, but somehow in a circle, so that, for instance, by Moving continually upward, we somehow wind up at the bottom. Imagine you're walking a path that appears to be a straight line, and you come to your starting point again. Well, then you realize that it was a circular path all along. 
surprising, but not so strange once you realize what's happening. But imagine instead that you're climbing a ladder and then you come to the same place that you started. That would be pretty weird. And that's the strange loop. It combines circularity with an ordered hierarchy. Actually, in a way, the hierarchy is an illusion created by the directedness. Each point in the series is greater than the one before it, ad infinitum. But there's no real top or bottom point. There's just where one begins. And as Charles Fort said in a quote I love to repeat ad infinitum, one measures a circle beginning anywhere. Hofstetter describes his version of the strange loop as, quote, not a physical circuit, but an abstract loop in which, in the series of stages that constitute the cycling around, there's a shift from one level of abstraction or structure to another, which feels like an upwards movement in a hierarchy, and yet somehow these successive upward shifts turn out to give rise to a closed cycle. That is, despite one's sense of departing ever further from one's origin, one winds up to one's shock exactly where one had started out. In short, a strange loop is a paradoxical level-crossing feedback loop. End quote. What the strange loop concept does for Hofstetter is to allow him to explain the way that it feels as if we cross levels from the material to the immaterial when we're dealing with the mind. And yet everything remains safely tucked into a self-referential enclosure of materiality. It's a spin on the materialist meme that consciousness is an illusion. The obvious response to this claim is that an illusion must be an illusion for a particular observer. Hofstetter's theory says yes, but that observer is part of the same material structure. At this point, a concrete explanation of what he means might clarify. He proposes the following thought experiment to understand how he thinks the mind arises from pure material events. Imagine a frictionless pool table on which there are a bunch of small marbles rolling around in random motion. The marbles are magnetic so that when they strike one another, they stick together and form large clusters. But also, as these clusters move around, they'll lose some marbles as well. This model is explicitly compared to Brownian motion, the random fluctuation of molecules in a liquid or a gas. The marbles he calls SIMS, an acronym standing for Small Interacting Magnetic Marbles, and the large clusters he calls SIM balls. The table he calls a carinium. Symbols in a cranium, get it? If you're groaning, well, the whole book is written like that. Another key feature of the metaphor, uh, I mean, thought experiment, is that outside of the table are flexible walls, which are highly sensitive to impacts from the outside. And the motion of these walls affects the careening of the sims and thus the formation of the sim balls. So over time, the sim balls come to reflect things that are external to the carinium. Hofstetter asks us to imagine activity on the carinium sped up as we zoom out so that the sims disappear and we see only the sim balls. What we should have here, if we are able to read it, 
is a map of the world external to the Carinium, with the symbols now acting literally as symbols. We should have, in other words, a mind. Where the strange loop comes into play is that, in addition to being a map of the external world, the Carinium becomes sophisticated enough to contain a map of itself. However, with the symbols, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence with things in the outside world, whether they be physical objects or abstract ideas. But there's no single symbol associated with the self or the I. If there were, you could perform surgery to remove it. The I is somehow an emergent property of a whole bunch of objects, ideas, and sensations that relate to the self. Wait, relate to what, you say? The self. Oh, but I thought the self was an emergent property of a whole bunch of objects that... Yeah, this strange loop business really involves a circular logic. The problem, or a problem, with Hofstetter's physicalization of symbols is that it assumes that there's a natural order of ideas or things in the world. Because remember, the symbols are physical structures that are reactive or passive. Their thinking is triggered by outside events, so they are not themselves responsible for cutting up the world into distinct things or concepts. Those have to exist outside the Carinium prior to the formation of the symbols. But this is what language does. However, language, in fact, the whole domain of what we would usually call the symbolic, is curiously cut out of the equation here. In Hofstetter's model, all of our ideas are supposed to emerge from a completely physical process, a completely random physical process as well. This is really just Lockean epistemology and psychology. There's nothing in the mind that doesn't arise from sensation. So abstract ideas can't cause anything because they're not physical. They can only be downstream from a physical sensation. An idea can't form a symbol, only a symbol can form an idea. At least in the beginning. Once abstractions emerge out of this process, then they can be causal, as they are fed back into the symbolic system. But how this happens, that level crossing he referred to, remains mysterious. Quantity becomes quality, but how? And the funny thing is that the basic image of this thought experiment recalls Hume's famous image of billiard balls striking one another. But the goal of that thought experiment was to undermine the very idea of causality at all. It's even more complicated than this because it's not clear which of our ideas are abstractions and which are not. One might say that all of them are. For instance, Hofstetter would probably admit that he's a materialist. He has every intention of keeping out of his philosophy of mind any cause that doesn't come from matter. But what even is matter? There's all kinds of things in the world. Dogs, chairs, comets, quarks. But I've never laid eyes on matter, never touched it. I've smelled the rain, and I've walked barefoot on sand, but I've never experienced nature. Okay, I'm just sort of playing dumb here. I understand these as abstractions, but I'm trying to show how Hofstetter actually believes in something more mysterious than he admits. 
You know, the ancient Greek language had no general term for matter. So that when Aristotle found that he needed a word for that, he used hule, which literally translates as wood. I think it's much safer to say that there's a cultural relativity among ideas mediated by language here than to conjecture that wood just hit differently on a Greek cranium. Hofstetter's insistence that the level of activity below the symbols is the truly meaningful and causal level, but that we only focus on the symbol level because that's the only level that's comprehensible to us, is an example of what philosopher Graham Harmon calls an undermining theory. Undermining is a tendentious rhetorical move meant to deny the reality of an object when we really have no good reason to. Harmon explains, quote, you can say that objects are a shallow fiction of common sense and that the real action happens at a deeper level, whether it be tinier components discovered through the sciences, some sort of pre-individual realm, an outright blob-like apiron, a vaguely defined mathematical structure, or some other variant of one of these options." End quote. Elsewhere in I Am a Strange Loop, Hofstetter does also use mathematical structure, which he borrows from Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And Harman has an opposite category he calls overmining, but I'm not going to go into that stuff now. Anyway, I'm not sure whether I'm implicitly defending some kind of Cartesian dualism, an older Platonic dualism, or some kind of linguistic determinism along the lines of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Although, personally, I, I wouldn't be happy with any one of those models either. But I am sure that Hofstetter's symbol model is not really how thinking works, because it is language and symbols and not symbols that are the appropriate level of analysis, with no need for recourse to the atomic or subatomic level as a reductive explanation. Consciousness as the ground of itself is somehow intolerable for the scientific materialists, who try while writing the mind off as an illusion because of its strange loop paradoxicality or tautology to ground the phenomenon in a material substrate. But they forget that this material substrate is itself a strange loop, a self-causing Ouroboros, irreducible to something else, and ought therefore to cancel itself out as illusory by the same logic. In the scientific narrative, the universe caused itself to be, just like a god in some ancient creation myth. One interesting twist on this worldview is that of a futurist like Ray Kurzweil, who believes in a technological singularity, and that God is essentially accelerated intelligence, another kind of level crossing as the material world becomes more complex until self-awareness emerges. If it can happen materially, inside a human cranium, why not in the universe at large? When Kurzweil is asked if he believes God exists, he says, Not yet.
The most interesting psychological interpretation of the Ouroboros, to me, comes from the Jungian psychoanalyst Erich Neumann. In his book, The Origin and History of Consciousness, he provides a reading of symbols and archetypes to show how consciousness emerges and develops in parallel form across human history and in individual lives. Consciousness, rationality, and the ego, which are represented in myth by the hero, emerge from chaos and the unconscious. The dragon-slaying myth, the chaos conf, is here seen in the light of the Jungian theory of individuation. In a way, the book is like an alternate version of the hero's journey made famous by Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Each stage in the development of consciousness can be interpreted by a dominant symbol or a cluster of symbols. The first that he analyzes, which stands for the very beginning, the pre-conscious stage, is the Ouroboros. This symbol emerges for Neumann as the only way for a conscious mind to conceptualize the unconscious. So we see that, as with the Gnostic Leviathan, Ouroboros forms the boundary marker between the light of consciousness and the darkness of the unconscious. Neumann writes, quote, Circle, sphere, and round are all aspects of the self-contained, which is without beginning and end. In its pre-worldly perfection, it is prior to any process. Eternal, for in its roundness there is no before and no after, no time. And there is no above and no below, no space. All this can only come with the coming of light, of consciousness, which is not yet present. Now all is under sway of the unmanifest Godhead, whose symbol is therefore the circle. End quote. This phrase, unmanifest Godhead, reminds us of the Einsof of Kabbalah. It reminds us perhaps also of the beginning of the Gospel of John which states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here the original word translated into English as a word is actually the Greek logos, a very complex word with multiple meanings, among them speech, reason, ground, and discourse. Actually, one word that it might not translate as very well as a word, ironically, but that's another story. The pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus used the term to refer to the ultimate truth of existence, somewhat comparable to the Tao or Way of Lao Tzu. And in his collection of sayings, Heraclitus's that is, not Lao Tzu's, he implores men to listen not to him but to the Logos. In John, we are to understand that the Logos means Jesus Christ, who is paradoxically with God and also God in the beginning. This is perhaps the origin of the Trinitarian idea in Christianity, which articulates the Godhead as three hypostases, three separate beings who are nevertheless of one substance, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The relationship between the three beings is a very difficult concept to understand, and has occupied Christian theologians for 
hundreds of years and been the reason for bitter fractures among the faithful. We might think of the Gnostic motto, Hento Pan, here, for the three are also one. Not only that, but the Father is responsible for producing the Son, otherwise he would not be the Father. But this cannot occur in time, for it is said that the Son is there in the beginning. There's also another paradoxical idea known as perichoresis, in which the three persons somehow each contain one another. As Hilary of Poitiers wrote, one permanently envelops and is permanently enveloped by the other, whom he yet envelops. Rock, paper, scissors. You might recognize our friend the strange loop. Christ also reminds us of the Ouroboros when he appears in the final book of the Bible, the Revelation of John, where he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Neumann says of the Ouroboros archetype that, quote, so long as man shall exist, perfection will continue to appear as the circle, the sphere, and the round. And the primal deity, who is sufficient unto himself, the self who has gone beyond the opposites, will reappear in the image of the round, the mandala, end quote. The pre-conscious psyche as described by Neumann is also a trinity, three beings in one, only the persons are not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Father, Mother, and Unborn Ego. In the pleromatic phase of life, when the ego swims about in the round like a tadpole, there is nothing but the Ouroboros in existence. It is the time of existence in paradise where the psyche has her pre-worldly abode, the time before the birth of the ego, the time of unconscious envelopment, of swimming in the ocean of the unborn. The word pleroma is Greek for fullness and was used by Gnostics to describe the divine world of spirit as opposed to the material world which it called kenoma or emptiness. Neumann isn't applying the concept to cosmology but only to human psychological development both as an individual and as a species. The pleroma in his account is just the state of the world before the human begins to identify itself as something different or apart from it. This is the experience of early mankind, and it is recapitulated or re-experienced by every individual child. Neumann again, quote, An embryonic and still undeveloped germ of ego consciousness slumbers in the perfect round and awakens. Humanity does not yet exist, there is only divinity. Only the world has being. Naturally, then, the first phases of man's evolving ego consciousness are under the dominance of Ouroboros. Just as the infantile ego, living this phase over again, feebly developed, easily tired, emerges like an island out of the ocean of the unconscious for occasional moments only, and then sinks back again, so early man experiences the world, small, feeble, and much given to sleep, i.e. for the most part unconscious. He swims about in his instincts like an animal. Enfolded and upborne by great mother nature, rocked in her arms, he is delivered over to her for good or ill. Nothing is himself. Everything is world.
end quote. In Neumann's scheme, the Ouroboros archetype continues to dominate the earliest phase of life, but in a developing way in which it means different things. Ouroboros can reappear at later phases of life, such as at the very end, in which it reappears as the mandala, the symbol for the oneness of the soul. Before I go on to describe its different meanings, I want to talk about my favorite film in which the Ouroboros symbol appears, because it actually illustrates pretty well how Neumann thinks this works. Adaptation, released in 2002, was directed by Spike Jones and written by Charlie Kaufman. It's a great example of how you can have a postmodern metafiction that's still knee-deep in the mythical and archetypal. It stars Nicolas Cage as a screenwriter named Charlie Kaufman, who is tasked with adapting the nonfiction book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, as indeed the real-life Charlie Kaufman was. Fresh off the success of his previous film, Being John Malkovich, Charlie, both the real and the fictional Charlie, finds himself utterly overcome by writer's block. He has no idea how to turn the book into a movie. So adaptation is a drama of creation. Charlie struggles to bring forth the logos that is with him and that is him. On top of this, he is unable to ask out the woman he has a crush on. Now the anxious and insecure nebbish Charlie has a twin brother, Donald, also played, of course, by Nick Cage, who is outgoing and has no problems flirting with women or saying whatever's on his mind, usually something Charlie regards as idiotic. Donald has ambitions to be a screenwriter, too, and is writing a cliched psychological thriller. At exactly the moment where Charlie's creative and personal crises come to a head, our friend the Earl Burroughs shows up. Let's hear the scene. Who am I kidding? This is not Susan Orlean's story. I have no connection with her. I can't even meet her. I can't meet anyone. I have no understanding of anything outside of my own panic and self-loathing and pathetic little existence. It's like the only thing I'm actually qualified to write about is myself and my own self. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, old, bald, repulsive, sitting in a Hollywood restaurant across from Valerie Thomas, uh, a, a lovely statuesque film executive, Kaufman, uh, trying to get a writing assignment, wanting to impress her. Sweats profusely. Fat, bald, Kaufman paces furiously in his bedroom. He speaks into his handheld tape recorder and he says, Charlie Kaufman, fat, bald, repulsive, old, sits at a Hollywood restaurant with Valerie Thomas. Kaufman, pudgy, ridiculous, jerks off to the book jacket photo of Susan Orlean. What do you want? I finished my script. So would you show it to your agent? It's called The Three. Thanks. I also want to thank you for your idea. It was very helpful. I changed it a little. Now the killer cuts off body pieces and, and makes his victims eat them. It's kind of like Caroline has this great tattoo of a snake swallowing its own tail. And a burrows. I don't know what that means. The snake, it's called Earl Burroughs. I don't think so. But anyway, it's called for my killer to have this modus operandi because at the end, when he forces the woman who's really him to eat herself, he's also eating himself to death. And it's saying, I'm Earl Burroughs. I don't know what that word means. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? Self-indulgent, 
It's narcissistic. It's solipsistic. It's pathetic. I'm pathetic. I'm fat. Pathetic. I'm sure you had good reasons, Charles. You're an artist. The reason is because I'm too timid to speak to the woman who wrote the book. Because I'm pathetic. Because I have no idea how to write. Because I can't make flowers fascinating. Because I suck. Am I in the script? I'm going to New York. I'll meet her. That's it. That's what I have to do. Okay, so I realize that if you haven't seen the movie, just the audio might be confusing because the voices of both characters are from Nick Cage. So let me just give the synopsis. Charlie has the epiphany that since he can't adapt the book, he'll instead write a movie about his own inability to adapt the book. He's reflexively turning in on himself, going into his own head to write about it, almost in a kind of strange loop. This is a running theme in Charlie Kaufman's films. In Being John Malkovich, a strange portal in an office building is discovered, which somehow leads one into John Malkovich's head so that you can see what he sees. At one point, Malkovich figures out what's going on and decides to enter it himself. I won't spoil it, but it's a pretty great scene, and you should check it out if you haven't. Anyway, just as Charlie is having his big breakthrough, his brother Donald comes in and announces he's finished his own screenplay, and we find that what Charlie has done on the conceptual level, Donald has done on the level of plot, that is, created an Ouroboros. He's written an insane serial killer character who's torturing a victim by forcing her to eat herself, although the victim is actually himself. Hearing this, Charlie realizes that what he's doing is insane. Intellectually, he's cannibalizing himself, just like the Ouroboros. Everything within the magic circle of Ouroboros is in identity with everything else. In order to have a separate identity, to differentiate, the egg must be cracked open and the circle must be turned into a line. This is the birth of the hero, which Neumann identifies with consciousness. In adaptation, while Charlie is suffering writer's block, he is still under the spell of Ouroboros, which the movie associates with his self-isolation and self-consciousness, his inability to take heroic action and ask out a woman he likes. He therefore comes up with an Ouroboros solution, which is to make his story about his inability to make his story. He's trying to make himself an artistic perpetual motion machine, hoping to take the friction and agony generated by the writing process and make it the content of the process. Self-reference threatens to consume everything. His own poorly developed ego becomes a devouring mother. He overcomes this through the help of his twin, a double that assists him. As the film moves from Uruburic self-reference to narrative development, the focus of the film moves from Charlie to Donald. The drama of the film is in the move from the circular to the linear. But of course, any line pursued long enough tends to turn again into a circle. Neumann thought that the Ouroboros symbolized the state of pre-conscious perfection, which is like paradise. It's the womb, more or less. And the moment we are born, we are cast out of the garden, when our mother provided for our every need. And so long as this is the case, we have no knowledge of ourselves as separate beings. 
This is the embryonic or pleromatic stage. Next, in the earliest stage of our independent life, we are still psychologically dominated by the Ouroboros symbol. As we become conscious slowly and in fits and starts, the second stage of the Ouroboros Neumann calls the elementary, which is a closed circuit whose own waste provides its own food. Remember, we're on the level of myth here, this isn't literal. But it is literal in the plot of Donald's screenplay, which involves cannibalism. Just as a quick aside here, notice that Donald's film is called The Three, which calls to mind the trinity we mentioned earlier. But Charlie's screenplay is a kind of intellectual cannibalism, and it reveals that he's essentially immature psychologically. And this is why he is unable to act in the world. He wants to stay in his own psyche, of which he has made a psychological substitute womb. He hopes that his own mind will provide all the food he needs. But it isn't so. And it's the moment that he realizes this that the plot of adaptation really begins to move. Here's Neumann's description of this elementary stage of the Ouroboros. Quote, the Ouroboros is properly called the tail eater, and the symbol of the elementary canal dominates the whole stage. The swamp stage of the Ouroboros and the early matriarchate, as described by Bakufen, is a world in which every creature devours every other. Cannibalism is symptomatic of this state of affairs. On this level, which is pregenital because sex is not yet operative, and the polar tension of the sexes is still in abeyance, there is only a stronger that eats and a weaker that is eaten. In the animal world, since rutting is relatively rare, the visceral psychology of hunger occupies the foreground. Hunger and food are the prime movers of mankind. Everywhere we find, in the initial creation myths, a pregenital food symbolism." End quote. Now, if you've seen Adaptation, you may recognize the coincidence of calling this the swamp stage, because the film ends in a Florida swamp full of gators. Anyway, the scene we heard also briefly nods at the third of Neumann's Ouroboric phases, which he calls the genital masturbatory and whose image he takes from the Egyptian creation myth of Atum, as described thus in one of the pyramid texts. Quote, Atum, who indulged himself in Heliopolis, took his phallus in his hand in order to arouse pleasure. A brother and sister were produced, Shu and Tefnut. I copulated in my hand, I joined myself to my shadow and spurted out of my own mouth. I spewed forth as Shu and spat forth as Tefnut. End quote. Here an act of cosmic masturbation produces twins, like Charlie and Donald. Interesting. There's no real Donald Kaufman, by the way. Seems Charlie had to imagine a twin with the opposite character of his own in order to overcome his creative block. In the scene, Donald walks in on Charlie as he is describing masturbating to the book jacket cover of Susan Orlean the author of the story he's supposed to adapt. Masturbation is an act that makes oneself a kind of sexual Ouroboros, and as we saw, it appears in creation myths. The problem with it is that when it appears in a god, it is creative, 
because the god really is autarkic or self-sufficient, but the person is not. Neumann notes that autarky is just as necessary a goal of life and development as is adaptation. True, but one doesn't gain autarky just by retreating into the imagination and jerking off. Real action is required. I don't want to go too far afield because the Ouroboros is only one part of Neumann's whole scheme, but the rest of adaptation can be read in this light as well. From this scene onward, the film is about the twins tracking down and confronting Susan Orlean, who I believe represents the great mother archetype, which dominates the next stage of life for Neumann. That Charlie was masturbating to her image shows that he was imaginatively stuck in what Neumann calls Ouroboric incest, in which a, quote, pleromatic fixation denotes an inability to break away from his origins and a refusal to be born into the world. So we see that for Charlie, the Ouroboros appeared as a sign of immaturity. But it also signaled the beginning of a new creative phase in which he is able to act and be aware of what his real problems are. And Neumann says that Ouroboros often does appear at moments such as these. He writes, quote, The Ouroboros also symbolizes the creative impulse of the new beginning. It is the wheel that rolls itself the initial rotatory movement in the upward spiral of evolution, end quote. I know of another story in which this happened in real life, or perhaps not exactly in real life, it happened in a dream, a real dream, which is what a work of fiction is anyway, but I digress. We've already seen how the Ouroboros has appeared in ancient alchemical texts, but fascinatingly it has played a role in modern chemistry as well. Somewhere around the year 1862, the German chemist August Kekulay was working on the problem of the molecular structure of the organic compound benzene, which is a natural component of crude oil and one of the elementary petrochemicals. It's now a major industrial chemical that's used as a precursor for the manufacture of more complex chemicals like ethyl benzene and cumene. Kekulay told the story of how Ouroboros figured in his work thus. Quote, I was sitting, writing at my textbook, but the work did not progress. My thoughts were elsewhere. I turned my chair to the fire and dozed. Again, the atoms were gambling before my eyes. This time, the smaller groups kept modestly in the background. My mental eye, rendered more acute by the repeated visions of the kind, could now distinguish larger structures of manifold conformation. Long rows, sometimes more closely fitted together, all twining and twisting in snake-like motion. But look, what was that? One of the snakes had seized hold of its own tail, and the form whirled mockingly before my eyes. As if by a flash of lightning I awoke, and this time also I spent the rest of the night in working out the consequences of the hypothesis. This was his eureka moment. He had figured out that benzene had a circular or ring structure. So far we've had nothing to say about time, so we definitely need to talk about that because if there's one thing Ouroboros calls to mind, it is time. Or rather, eternity, which is to say infinite or cyclical time. But is eternity the same thing as time? What about the phrase time in all eternity? Isn't eternity, in fact, outside or beyond time?
What did William Blake mean when he said, Eternity is in love with the productions of time? Well, perhaps the concepts of time and eternity can be synthesized in the Ouroboros symbol. But it's very difficult to talk about, or really even to think about time, because the whole subject is, to use a technical term, absolutely fucking crazy. Although we all seem to have a sense that time is an aspect of our existence, there's no way of conceptualizing it that isn't full of paradoxes and absurdities. When the philosopher Augustine attempted to define time, he said, If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain to him who asks, I know not. And on my bad days, I just want to say this, but for everything. So with that in mind, let me just quickly and insufficiently cover the ancient association of Ouroboros with time, and then the dominant current theories of time. Snakes perhaps came to be associated with symbols of time because they are well known for periodically shedding their skin. Ion was the Greek god of ages and cycles, an orb surrounding the earth, but often depicted as a man standing within the circle of zodiacal signs. Nonus, an Egyptian poet of the Hellenic era, says that Ion changes the burden of old age like a snake who sloughs off the coils of the useless old scales, rejuvenescing while washing in the swells of the laws of time. He was often shown standing above Tellus, the Roman earth goddess, and appearing with twinned snakes, thus linking him both with Ouroboros and with the Caduceus. Kronos is more well known as a god of time than Ion, but the Greeks had three concepts of time. Ion was eternal or cosmic time. Kronos was quotidian clock time, and Kairos was the right time, or something like timeliness. In the later Roman Empire, Ion began to be assimilated to Kronos, who also became conflated with Cronus, or Latin Saturn. In the same way that Pluto, the god of the underworld, became conflated with Pluton, the god of wealth. In the late Roman and Hellenistic periods, Ion went through a number of obscure transformations and may have had something to do with Leontocephaline, the lion-headed man with a serpent coiling around his body of the Mithraic mysteries. In Ptolemaic Alexandria, at the site of a dream oracle, the Hellenistic syncretic god Serapis was identified as Ion Plutonius. In other contexts, Ion was identified with Osiris and Dionysus. Details are sketchy here, but one can see how such dying and reviving gods could become associated with the god of time, as the dying and reviving of the day is the first basis of our ideas of time. It's interesting that ancient Greece recognized three types of time, so we're back to the three mentioned earlier. We inevitably comprehend time as three-dimensional in terms of past, present, and future, just as we comprehend space as three-dimensional. Perhaps Hegel and traditional Christianity is correct that reality is threefold. 
There are three contemporary theories of time, which don't quite map on to this past, present, future trinity, but do inevitably deal with them, each in terms of either existence or non-existence. The first theory is called presentism, and it asserts that present exists and the past and future do not. Presentism conforms to our experience, but it is still difficult to really comprehend and leads to some pretty shocking paradoxes. For instance, what happened to all the events that are not occurring now? We remember the past, but if only the present is real, what does that mean for our memories or for our history books for that matter? Bertrand Russell once proposed as a thought experiment the idea that we were born just a moment ago and created with memories already implanted as if factory installed, which seem real but are not. If you've seen the movie Blade Runner, you may recognize this idea. The second theory is called the growing block universe, and it gets rid of that unsettling notion that the past is an ontological void into which events disappear. It asserts that the past and present exist, but the future does not. So time is like a block that keeps getting bigger as more and more events accumulate, remaining real even as they fade into the past. The idea that the future doesn't exist is pretty intuitive, but it's not clear what it means to say that past events are just as real as the present. And personally, I'm not fond of the image of the block. Why that shape? Because it seems static and stable, I suppose. But I'd rather prefer to think of this theory in terms of a bubble. Bubbles expand and grow in all directions. Yes, the universe is a soap bubble blown up by a god until one day it reaches its greatest possible expanse and then pops, blinking out of existence. I can believe in this one. But we might still be troubled by the future not existing, just as we were by the past not existing in the presentist theory. If the future doesn't exist, where do new events come from? We always think of time as moving, but without a future, what is it moving toward? The third theory deals with this problem, and it solves it, just as all of these theories solve the problems of time, which is to say, in a way that is totally unsatisfying, at least to me, but apparently not to a lot of experts, because eternalism is currently the most popular of the three. In it, past, present, and future all exist. Everything that is going to happen is already there, waiting for us in time, just as if you're going to take a trip across the Atlantic from the United States to England, England is already there waiting for you. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere when you get there. You may already see what the problem is here. For one, we have a subjective experience of moving through time, that time involves change, but why should this be the case? Everything has, in a sense, happened already, so all change must be some kind of illusion, as indeed some ancient thinkers like Parmenides and Xenovalia argued it was. We also feel as though we make events happen by choosing from possible alternatives, but in eternalism this is also an illusion. Only actual events were ever really possible, so there's no choice. It's completely deterministic. It seems we can't help but thinking of time in spatial terms. 
In presentism, time is like a single point of dynamic becoming. The growing block universe is a three-dimensional object pushing outward in one direction. Eternalism is like a solid object that looks static from the outside, from God's perspective, but appears to change from within. So what's all this got to do with Ouroboros? Well, interestingly enough, the eternalist view is approved by most scientists because it seems to accord with Einsteinian space-time. But there's a particular kind of eternalism that is ancient and takes the shape of Ouroboros. It's called the eternal return, or circular time. And just as the snake bites its own tail, the end of time is joined to the beginning, alpha to omega in an eternal wheel. Everything that can happen will happen, and everything that happens happens again and again forever. It was displaced by the Judeo-Christian apocalyptic model, which imagines creation ex nihilo, and eventually a final end to time. But it is famously revived by Nietzsche in a passage in the Gay Science, short enough that I will now read it in its entirety. Quote, the greatest weight. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you in your loneliest loneliness and say to you, the life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence even as this spider and this moonlight between the trees, and even this moment and I myself. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down, again and again, and you with it, speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him? You are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine. If this thought gained possession of you, it would change you as you are, or perhaps crush you. The question in each and every thing, do you desire this once more, and innumerable times more, would lie upon your actions as the greatest weight? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life, to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? End quote. The what-if at the beginning seems to indicate that Nietzsche is proposing this as a thought experiment and not as an actual doctrine of the way time is. But as with everything in Nietzsche, there's some debate about this. It's often taken as a call to evaluate one's life by asking, would I want to live this moment infinitely? I drive past an exit I need to take on the freeway. Sitting in my reading chair at home, I look out the window and notice the first few flakes of snow. These are moments that will be lost to my memory in but a few moments, perhaps completely annihilated by time. The idea that they will recur an infinite number of times lends them a strange poignancy they would not otherwise have. But my thinking about them as infinitely recurring or even the possibility of remembering that they have infinitely recurred, could not, in the theory of the eternal return, add anything new to the other iterations. 
If I know this moment is infinite, I have always known it and will always know it. I'm not producing a new cycle. Perhaps the infinite number of moments actually collapse into one, since they are indistinguishable, as if they are one point on a circle. Jorge Luis Borges noted this in an essay on the concept. He wrote, Without a special archangel to keep track, what does it mean that we are going through the 13,514th cycle, or first in the series, or the number 322 to the 2,000th power? Also, it seems that the poignancy is only added to these otherwise insignificant moments. To profound moments, infinity reduces to absurdity. Borges points out that St. Augustine attacked the ancient version of the doctrine because of the singularity of Christ's crucifixion. He comments, Farewells and suicides lose their dignity if repeated too often. There's another kind of Ouroboric pattern allowed if we consider the possibility of time travel, and it's what I call temporal autopoiesis. Eternalism technically allows for time travel because there's no reason for the time flow to be unidirectional. I don't understand it myself, but physicists will say that although the arrow of time does flow one way, the mathematics of it technically ought to allow it to flow the other way. And the mathematics are what it's all about anyway. However, eternalism doesn't allow for the altering of history. Even if we imagine multiple timelines branching from changing past events, you'd have to say that the multiple timelines always existed. What's really crazy is that if time travel is possible within this scheme, it allows for objects that are the cause of themselves. An example. The song Johnny Be Good, as depicted in the classic time travel movie Back to the Future. Now, as everyone knows, this song was written by Chuck Berry in 1955, though not recorded and released until 1958. But in the film, Berry heard the song played by Marty McFly, a time traveler from 1985. But of course, in 1985, Marty McFly learned Johnny B. Good by hearing Chuck Berry's classic recorded version. So which one of them actually wrote the song if each heard it from the other? Neither. It's like M.C. Escher's drawing hands. Another example comes from a science fiction short story by Robert Heinlein called All You Zombies. I'm about to spoil the plot of this story, so you should either pause now and go read it, or else skip ahead a few minutes if you care about that sort of thing. The story actually has an extremely complicated timeline, although the brilliance of it is that it doesn't seem that way as you read it. It starts in the middle and circles around with the beginning and then back to the end, but I'm going to make it really simple and just tell it in order. The hero, who for reasons that will soon be clear, is known as the unmarried mother and is a hermaphrodite who grew up as female in an orphanage. When she left the orphanage, she wanted to become a space-traveling prostitute, but first was seduced and impregnated by a mysterious stranger who subsequently disappeared. Upon giving birth, it is discovered that she has a set of male sex organs as well. Now, I don't know exactly what the anatomic setup is, but at this point, she has a sex change and now lives 
her life as a man. After giving birth, his baby is stolen by what is assumed to be some baby-crazed female. The unmarried mother now goes on to live a sad sack life as a writer of confessional articles for cheap magazines until he tells his story to a bartender who happens to be wearing a ring with the Ouroboros symbol. It turns out that the bartender, who by the way is the narrator of the story, is a secret agent for a time travel agency and offers him a chance to go back in time and get revenge on the mysterious seducer who wrecked his dreams. They go back in time, but before the unmarried mother can get his revenge, he meets and seduces an attractive woman. And I think you can put two and two together on the identity of the woman. Now, to complete the mission, the bartender jumps forward 11 months and kidnaps the child of the affair, takes it back in time, and gives it to an orphanage. Then jumping ahead to the time just following the seduction, he picks up his companion and reveals the secret that he is she and she is he and everyone in the story is the same person. Ouroboros. Remember earlier when I said that Ray Kurzweil thinks that God doesn't exist now but perhaps will at some point in the future? Well, what if God emerges at the end of time and it's God's job to go back in time? to make sure that the universe comes into being. Now, before we wrap up this loopy episode and leave this ever-fascinating symbol behind, I want to bring up another moment in Nietzsche where the image of Ouroboros comes up. It's in his earliest book, The Birth of Tragedy. He's criticizing Socrates, who he thinks ruined the tragic Dionysian spirit of ancient Greece by bringing in Apollonian rationalism, which we may think of as the white half of the snake to Dionysus's black half. In modern terms, we would think of this Socratic turn as progress and enlightenment, but for Nietzsche, Socratic inquiry, which runs every idea and value through the analytical ringer, leads only to cultural decadence and dissolution. Here he describes the process. Quote, but now science, incited by its powerful delusion, speeds on inexorably, right to its limits, at which point the optimism hidden in the essence of logic fails. For the circumference of the circle of science has an infinity of points, and while it is still impossible to see how that circumference could ever be completely measured, nevertheless the noble, talented man before the middle of his life, inevitably comes up against some border point on that circumference, where he stares at something which cannot be illuminated. When, at this point, he sees to his horror how logic turns around on itself and finally bites its own tail, then a new form of knowledge breaks through, the acknowledgement of the tragic, which in order merely to be endured requires art as a protector and healer. End quote. By science here, he means not necessarily what we would call science in the terms of lab experiments and things like that, but the kind of rational optimism that underlies the scientific endeavor and that Socrates introduced into Greek life. The faith that the universe is fundamentally congenial to human reason. But the further one pushes the scientific inquiry, 
that this faith encourages, the more one runs up against the irrational and inhuman facts that, for Nietzsche, here still under the influence of the great philosopher of pessimism, Schopenhauer, made up the ultimate reality of the universe. Now, I don't know whether this is true or not. Nietzsche later completely reversed his Schopenhauerian pessimism without becoming a rationalist. I find the view persuasive depending on my mood, and I'm probably not alone in this. But I often think about this quote when I meet a certain type of person who tends to call themselves either a rationalist or skeptic. They're always eager to debunk claims of the paranormal or spiritual experiences or anything based on feeling. You know the type, facts don't care about feelings, where's your citations, logical fallacy, etc. Yeah, I'm thinking about someone specific that I work with right now. I find them completely tendentious, and it's clear to me that what they're really motivated by is maintaining a certain view of the way the world is supposed to be. And ironically, it has nothing to do with the way the terms rationalism or skepticism were classically used in philosophy. The problem with them, I think, is not that they're too logical. No, I think the real problem is that they're not logical enough. They like so-called clear and distinct ideas, but they've never really deeply investigated logic or science or mathematics beyond a popular apologetics. If they did, they'd actually find that Pushed to its furthest extreme, the logical and scientific leads to the absurd, contradictory, and mysterious, much like those strange loops in M.C. Escher paintings. Lewis Carroll was a mathematician obsessed with logic, and he wrote two of the most absurd books ever, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Logic is the snake biting its tail. It's the line followed far enough that it turns into a circle. Conscious intellectual thinking brings us back to contemplation of the unconscious. It's amazing how much of our lives we spend unconscious. We spend on average one-third of our lives sleeping, a third of life completely unconscious. Even while we are awake, most of what we are doing, we are doing unconsciously. Most of our bodily processes happen without our will or awareness.